Hello, and welcome to Tales from Imperial Russia, with Dr. James White. Episode 12. The First Rasputin. The Tale of Forty Spassky. From cartoonish villain to semi-tragic hero, from misunderstood holy man to a dark sorcerer, casting his pal across the Russian Empire, the story of Grigory Rasputin remains one of Russia's most well-known. A particularly pious but often flawed Siberian peasant, Rasputin came to the notice of prominent Orthodox churchmen in the early 20th century and through their patronage gained personal access to Nicholas II and his family. Offering spiritual counsel to the Empress, in particular during her son Alexei's near-fatal bouts of haemophiliac bleeding, he was able to leverage his relationship with the Tsar into political power. Subject to endless gossiping and scurrilous rumours, Rasputin came to represent, for many, the decay and decadence at the very top of the imperial regime. However, Rasputin was by no means the first putative holy man to wield incredible and potentially destructive influence over a Russian ruler. If we turn the clock back by nearly a century, we find a similar such individual at the court of Nicholas II's great-granduncle, Alexander I, who ruled between 1801 and 1825, the monk Forty Spassky. Born in 1792, near the ancient city of Novgorod, Pyotr Spassky, Foti was the name he was given upon taking monastic vows, was the son of a village priest. His was not to be a particularly happy childhood. As with all too many rural Orthodox priests, Foti's father found recourse from a life of toil and hardship in the bottle. During his father's bouts of drunkenness, Foti found himself on the end of severe beatings. But his father's priestly status guaranteed him one key advantage, access to the Orthodox Church's schooling system. Excelling in the often grim, violent and cold atmosphere of the average Russian seminary was no mean feat, but Foti did so, thus gaining himself a place in 1814 in the St. Petersburg Ecclesiastical Academy, the Orthodox Church's equivalent of a university. Already an extremely spiritual young man who believed he was on a special mission from God, this was the point at which Foti began to receive strange and terrible visitors. Demons, apparitions, and apparently even Satan himself, who would reach out and strangle Foti by the throat. On one occasion, Foti demanded that the devil show himself in his true form. The visage that revealed itself was so horrendous, so hair-raising, that the young man had to take to his bed for several days in order to recover. Given his turn to the darker sides of orthodox mysticism, Foti decided to abandon his studies and become a monk in 1817. This was no surprise to the people around him, for whom his asceticism and spirituality were legendary. 
to keep the horrible visions of hell at bay, Foti practised an extreme regimen of prayer, self-denial and self-punishment. In the depths of the freezing winters of St. Petersburg, where the wind is so sharp it feels as though it can cut like a knife, Foti insisted on wearing only the lightest of clothing and no undergarments. He wrapped his body in heavy, rattling chains and deprived himself of food to such an extent that he looked more like a skeleton than a living man. Tea he denounced as a pagan and idolatrous communion. It is perhaps no wonder that such measures were hardly effective at keeping monstrous hallucinations at bay. A not infrequent sight on Petersburg's grey granite streets was that of Forty chasing down some imp he had caught in the act of causing mischief. But none of this disturbing behaviour particularly harmed his career. His first posting was quite prestigious, religious instructor to a corps of officer cadets in St. Petersburg. Among their ranks were sons of some of the most prominent aristocrats in the country. He was alien to them and they to him. Forty was shocked to his core to hear the latest a-religious philosophical ideas rolling off the tongues of these young military men. There were few things that Forty despised more than the systems of thought and belief that came from outside Russian orthodoxy. He once described reading such a work as feeling as though his skin was being peeled off. So much did he hate the circulation of such texts that he compiled a list of 332 books, then freely on sale, that he considered heretical, blasphemous and worthy of the severest censorship. In 1820, Foti was able to enter still further into the loftiest echelons of Russian society by impressing the aristocratic courtier Baroness Anna Orlova Chesmienskaya, the daughter of one of the men who, some 60 years earlier, had helped Catherine the Great overthrow her luckless spouse, Peter III. Rich and extremely religious, Anna was mightily impressed by Foti's fiery style of sermonising, his seemingly endless detestation for the intellectual and cultural products of the West, and his immense sacrifices made in the name of spirituality. She became his spiritual daughter, moulded as he saw fit. His surviving letters to her are an odd combination of severe chastisement and petulant whining. Her protection was invaluable. Senior figures in the church were very disturbed by Foti's overweening zeal and attempted to move him to a provincial monastery. She intervened at the very highest levels of the church and government to stop this move dead in its tracks. No less crucial was her great fortune in both riches and friends. Given unlimited access to both, Foti quickly became a regular guest at some of the northern capital's most exclusive salons and drawing rooms. Before proceeding with Foti's story any further, we need to understand a little bit about Alexander I and his government. Coming to power in 1801, 
after the murder of his father, the temperamentally despotic Paul I, many had high hopes for the handsome, charming and genial Alexander, who had been educated by some of the finest liberal minds of the European West. Although reform was slow and cumbersome, particularly with regards to the serfs, the majority of Russian peasants kept in slave-like bondage, these hopes had largely not been betrayed by 1812. But then occurred truly formative events that shook both Alexander and his empire to the very core, the invasion of Napoleon Bonaparte. Marching some one million men into Russia, the French emperor seized Moscow on the 14th of September 1812, after which the old capital burnt down. Naturally, Alexander was overcome with fear, shame and apprehension for himself, his regime and his people. In this darkest night of a soul, he reached out through prayer, hoping for divine salvation. And salvation did indeed come, in the form of a frigid Russian winter and a newly replenished Russian army. Napoleon's troops fell back in disarray all the way to Paris, which the Russians took and occupied in 1814. For Alexander, this stupendous change in fortune was only possible through God's intervention. In the years that followed, Alexander turned away from his rather liberal roots, blaming the French Revolution of 1789 and the subsequent catastrophe of Napoleon on these philosophies. In his shift to conservatism, he emphasised the need to root society in traditional Christian morality and to defend existing government institutions. Mysticism became ever more marked in his thought, but it was not necessarily an orthodox mysticism. Rather, Alexander believed that most established forms of Christianity, in one way or another, could lead to divine truth. In such ideas, his dearest supporter was Prince Alexander Galitsyn, a close childhood friend of the Tsar, who had offered spiritual advice during the pitch-black days of 1812. To give their religious ideas an institutional embodiment, Alexander appointed the prince as the Minister of Education in 1817. Given the fact that he was already the leading secular bureaucrat of the Orthodox Church's ruling body, the Holy Synod, and the minister in charge of Russia's non-Orthodox faiths, Galitsyn essentially became the supreme overseer of all religious matters throughout the empire. Many hierarchs of the Russian Orthodox Church, however, were far from overjoyed at the appointment. For one thing, it was rumoured that Galitsyn was an atheist. For another, the lifelong bachelor was alleged to be gay. Some of his pet projects were looked at askance by the leading clergy, especially the Russian Bible Society. This association had as its aim the translation of the Bible from the often incomprehensible liturgical language of Old Church Slavonic and the widest possible distribution of this translation around Russia. Although Orthodox churchmen were heavily involved in the translation 
and the society's administrative business, this could not disguise the fact that it had been established by a British missionary group, and as such might conceivably be a vehicle for Protestant evangelism. And finally, Galitzin's overwhelming administrative power and influence over the Tsar led to increasing government interventions into matters that the clergy considered to be of exclusively church or theological interest. Opposition to the seemingly omnipotent Galitzin began to grow. This was how matters stood in 1822, when Baroness Anna Orlova introduced Foti to Bishop Selafim of St. Petersburg. Although not as rough-hewn or outrageously zealous as Foti, the bishop was cut from very much the same cloth, having an identical loathing and suspicion for Western ideas that could well, in his opinion, foment the same revolutionary disaster that had struck France in 1789. Selafim was also at the centre of a rapidly emerging web of opposition to Prince Galitzin that involved both churchmen and arch-conservative statesmen. Seraphim saw in Forti the perfect weapon with which to overthrow the overmighty prince. His mysticism and religiosity would surely impress the aging emperor, who was increasingly paranoid about secret sects in Russia causing disorders. Indeed, Foti promised the bishop that if he gained access to Alexander I, then he would use all his talents to convince the emperor to suppress non-orthodox religious groups. A meeting occurred between the emperor and the monk on the 5th of June, 1822, according to Foti's dubious account, when he entered Alexander's study, he ignored the supreme ruler of the empire to walk over to an icon hanging in a corner of the room and began several minutes of astute, silent prayer. When finally the conversation began, Alexander, in his usual affable manner, started with small talk. Having none of it, Foti immediately interrupted with a tirade about the secret revolutionary groups threatening the life of the Tsar and the soul of the country. A subsequent tete-a-tete was arranged with Alexander's wife, Maria, as a result of which new laws came into force against the Masonic order and similar such societies. Foti was awarded with a promotion to abbot of one of Russia's more famous monasteries, Finding it utterly dilapidated, he used Baroness Anna's wealth to rebuild it from the ground up. Flush with success, Seraphim and the other enemies of Galitzin now set the Russian Bible Society firmly in their sights. Once more, Foti was wheeled out to persuade the Tsar. Another meeting came about on the 20th of April, 1824, this time with the monk being smuggled into Alexander's office via a secret entrance. Once more, Foti used his poisoned tongue to claim that the foreign Protestant organisations supposedly hidden under the Bible Society's skirts sought both the religious and political overthrow of the empire. The best and surest way to smash the Bible Society was not simply to ban it, but to also cast down its leading supporter, Prince Galitzin. 
Although the emperor remained reluctant to turn against one of his oldest friends, he began to move against the Bible Society and its workers, going after the German Protestant preacher Johannes Gosner, whose public preaching and controversial commentaries on the Bible drew the ire of Orthodox conservatives like Seraphim and Forty. Indeed, Forty claimed that an angel had visited him with the message that Gosner's book contained a secret code that would trigger revolution in Russia in four years. As such, Gosner was deported from the Russian Empire. When news of Gosner's deportation arrived on Galitzin's desk, the prince was incandescent, since he was an admirer of a German and his books. Finding out that Foti was to blame for the incident, the prince went for a face-to-face -face confrontation with this most bizarre and unlikely of opponents. As Galitzin defended Gosner's reputation, Foti angrily blurted out that Galitzin's inevitable fall from power would be akin to Lucifer's descent from heaven. After spitting furious words in reply, Galitzin went to leave. Foti howled at his turned back that the prince would be damned to hell for all eternity. Rumour of the scandalous clash soon spread around the imperial court. For Galitzin, the writing was on the wall. With the Tsar seemingly firmly under the influence of his enemies, his political career was done. On the 15th of May, 1824, Alexander dismissed one of his oldest comrades from government. The Russian Bible Society was put under the chairmanship of Bishop Selafim, who promptly started preparing for its closure in 1826. All its stored copies of the Bible were seized and locked down. A modern Russian Bible was not to become widely available for almost five decades. Foti's victory was very short-lived indeed. Alexander was besides himself that he had been forced to toss a dear friend aside by the political shenanigans that had coalesced around the gaunt-faced monk. Another meeting between the two occurred in the summer of 1824. This time, Alexander was stony and spent half an hour berating the monk. Asked to defend himself, Foti pulled papers and documents from his boots and sleeves, using these and copious Bible citations to show the Tsar that an evil consortium of Englishmen, Jews, bankers, Freemasons and schoolmasters would bring Russia to its knees by the predicted year of 1836. Alexander's wrath was only lessened when he noted that the heavy chains Foti habitually wore under his cassock had scratched and torn deep wounds across a frail, bony chest. But by this point, Foti had rendered himself obsolete. Having helped his more powerful allies remove Galitzin, they saw no more need for him, and in any case, the Tsar had begun to detest the monk's rabid intolerance. Foti soon retreated to his rebuilt monastery in Novgorod, deprived of all power and political influence. Here he spent the remaining decade or so of his life, inspiring the local peasants with his holiness 
and terrifying the friars in his charge with a ceaseless campaign against that most heinous of sins, the wearing of underpants. A brief chance to restore his fortunes came in 1836, when Nicholas I, who had inherited the throne after his brother Alexander's death in 1825, visited the monastery. But the tactic Foti employed with Alexander, haughty superiority and spiritual aloofness, utterly failed to win over Nicholas, an entirely different kettle of fish. After keeping the Tsar waiting, Foti demanded that Nicholas kiss his hand. The Tsar was outraged at the impudence. Only Baroness Anna Orlova once again managed to save her friend from punishment. Finally, in 1838, Foti died of starvation after denying himself food for the entire 40 days of Lent. Even taking into account Alexander I's post-1815 conservatism and mysticism, Foti's success can still seem hard to explain. How did a fanatical zealot manage to convince the urbane and cultured emperor to both dismiss his treasured bosom buddy Galitsyn and close the society dedicated to the seemingly harmless task of distributing cheap or even free copies of the Bible rendered into the comprehensible, everyday modern Russian? Partly it was due to Foti's ability to worm his way into highly placed aristocratic circles and thus gain recommendations and references from persons implicitly trusted by the emperor. Partly it was connected to the deep traumatic scars inflicted on Alexander by the invasion of 1812, which created a deep and abiding revulsion for revolution and the parties held to ferment it. And partly it was due to deeply rooted Russian cultural respect for holy men who spoke God's truth to those in charge. For if Foti really was a messenger from God, then who was Alexander to defy him? These were the exact pathways to power that Grigory Rasputin exploited almost a century later. But this, dear friends, is a tale for another time.